Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this long overdue podcast, I got to catch performance-based visual artist Amanda Coogan before she took to the Abbey stage to interpret deaf writer Teresa Devi's Katie Roach. In this podcast, Amanda talks about the beautiful discipline of interpreting for the stage and at home, growing up, in the noisiest house in the street. She talks of collaborating with Dublin Theatre of the Deaf on Talk Real Fine Just Like a Lady, an appropriation of Devi's The King of Spain's Daughter as part of the Dublin Fringe on the Peacock stage during Irish Sign Language Awareness Week. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series, Amanda Coogan. Um, Amanda, I know you as an internationally recognised performance artist. Indeed, sometimes that's how you answer the phone to me. (laughs) (laughs) But tonight I'm catching you in another guise as our sign language interpreter for Teresa Devi's Katie Roach on the Abbey stage. For those in the hearing world who have not witnessed a sign language performance here at the Abbey, uh, what does the sign language performance entail? It's a really kind of multi-layered, I suppose, job. And my approach to it is... Firstly, as a translator, so I've, I, I need to sit down with the script and actually work out a translation for it. But because I, I'm not just translating the written word, I'm translating a whole conceptual idea, the, the play as the production, rather, as conceived by the director and by the actors and the designers. So uh, it's some kind of a beautiful spin between how the actors are manifesting those characters, how they say the words, in what way the director has pushed the story and highlighted some bits and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So the best way for me to approach um, a sign language interpreted performance is to see the production first and then go back to the page, but seeing it through how it has manifest on the stage at this particular production. And then what I love to do, I'd work out a translation for the uh, speeches, trying always to see how I can bring it into a cultural perspective for the deaf community. So language, if language is culture, language deems culture, it's so important that in, so, in, in some ways I make it culturally appropriate or if I can make any allusions to deaf culture, especially when there's great themes of inequality or discrimination going on on the stage. These are the potent stories that filter through the deaf community anyway, uh, and they want to see these. They need to see that reflection on stage. So I'd be super aware of those things. And also then, looking at the production, I need to watch uh, the actors' movements really closely because... I am just one body. So so the production is being filtered through translation of one voice in inverted commas. So one so, uh, one methodology of signing. And I need to work out a, a way of representing who's speaking as I'm interpreting a conversation or a bat back and forth. And I'd often do that by trying to mimic the actions of the actor uh, and literally in the in this most simplistic way if an actor has their right hand out at a certain way and is waving it up and down before I say their speech I will put my hand right there boom and I'll then put it into sign language or 
in a we call it role shift in sign language in a super simple way if one of the actors is tall or is on a height and another actor is on uh, is low then i can role shift between those really easily that's kind of normative in the way we speak in sign language the thing about uh, one person that the translation or the performance being read through one person's vision is that uh, the way of speaking in sign language, almost a grammatical feature, is uh, reported speech. So we do that all the time naturally in sign language. Reported speech? Yeah, so we do he said, she said, mimicking the way people say things. Like if I'm reporting to you that I had lunch with my friend, I'll start talking like my friend talked in sign language. And then I said, mm, 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 mm. that's how I'd tell you that story of... So, so it, it lends itself really nicely to a singular translation. So in terms of that act of translation, because you are embodying um, every character on mm-hmm. stage, mm-hmm. You, you have shortcuts, you have you condense um, or compress a gesture. I mean, or do you actually fingerspell every word that's there? Oh, Janie Mac. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them shortcuts or condensing them. What I would try to do now, I'm always eight to ten seconds behind. That's normal for any simultaneous translation. Sometimes a little bit longer, you know, and it really depends. That's why I need to see the production so well, because sometimes there's a moment where I can catch up on myself. And there's other, t- you know, where performers stop speaking or there's some activity. And so I can maybe start speaking the speech just before they go into that, if I know I'm not going to have enough time to do it. And also a lovely, tricky thing, if there's something beautiful happening on stage that needs to be seen, something really sharp like a a, a smack or being thumped with a walking stick or whatever. I need to know when this is coming. I need to know the few lines before that. And so I will often simply just go watch the stage. This is the meaning of this, but actually the visuals is more important than the words to tell you. I'm going to hit you with this stick or something like that. You know, it, uh, of course, it depends on the play. Sometimes the plays are beautiful metaphors when there's some kind of rich density and I can bring that metaphor into a culturally appropriate way for ISL and make it gorgeously rich, especially, when, you know, when you're translating Shakespeare, it's so open to these beautiful, um, really deposited and uh, transubstantiated uh, metaphors into ISL. Uh, but if it's simply I'm going to whack you with the stick, I'll just turn to the stage. So my audience will look at this. They'll know, look at the stage. This is, ha- you know, this is happening. And if it's something beautiful, sorry to catch up on myself, I'll say it after the action. OK, so you let the, the action. I let the action speak. Center, yeah. So so my audience or the, a deaf audience or an audience who are interested in really getting the meaning out of uh, a sign language interpreted performance are visual people. It, visual is the primer, primary, the primacy of how they read and especially the theatre. So uh, my translation or any slip is always foregrounded in the visuals of the and the bodily activities of what's going on on stage. So the most exciting ones to translate are those super visual productions, very active, very physical, very visual. In terms of this production, Caroline Burns production, and with 
Keelan Dunn's fluid and choreographed um, Katie. Mm-hmm. So this this would especially lend itself to your style and your practice as well as anchoring itself through a, a, a deaf perspective. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm a visual artist and uh, a performance based visual artist. So anything this deliciously visual and this very embodied physical performance that Keelan makes is just glorious. I mean, I do think tonight that I'll literally be doing a lot of just look, just look at her, just look at the stage. You know, there's just, you know, moments where she's crawling in the muck, moments where she pulls out her apron from under the muck, when the kind of altar stroke table is lifting up. I'll stop everything. Because, you know, I'd just be like a buzzing fly on the side of the stage if I'm wrecking the visuals of that, you know. And my audience would kill me as well. It's like, why were you talking in the middle of this beautiful thing coming up out of the ground? So these kind of culturally appropriate things. um, Because the deaf audience want to experience it at at the same time as the hearing audience. Well, that's my aim. I want to have, for them, they'll never have exactly the same experience because they speak in a different language and they have different... Uh, embodied experience of the world so forefronting the visual um, over the aural so it'll be a different experience from hearing people and that's not to say it's better weaker or anything it's just it's simply different it cannot be uh, the same but I will try and make it as rich an experience as you know I always think that I've done a good job if I'm getting the same reaction from the deaf community as a hearing community if you know what I mean so if the hearing community don't like the show and my deaf audience go what did you do that for you know we didn't really like that play I'm like super I did a good job or if they're literally ecstatic and they're standing uh, and my deaf audience do then I've done a good job if it's a bad play and my deaf audience jump out of their seats I, I haven't properly appropriately followed the production. Well, how do you distance yourself? Because if you're the conduit between the director's vision and the actor's um, performance, mm-hmm. you like, I suppose it's your, you're the receptacle. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what uh, an interpreter's job is, to be that uh, um, conduit or receptacle to... Um, uh, pass on information from one community to the other, you know, uh, and I th- and it's a really gorgeous place to be, because actually, you know, as a maker in my other life, with all the responsibility of coming up with all the creativity and the images and the gestures and know, it's such a gorgeous learning experience actually to come and go, oh, mm, how delicious! I mean, that's in some ways where I need to be really disciplined and watch the pr- production first. Me personally, because then I'll just I'll start buzzing off the script. And if I read the script before I see the production. So I so my discipline is to watch the production and be very careful about referring to that production. Because you could because I suppose watching you interpret because you're a performance artist. I mean, your style is very different. So I suppose you do have to be careful about that. Yeah, because I could, you as an artist on the other side of my life, I could bring my own reading. You know what I mean? So, uh, so, in some really gorgeous way, it's a, it's, it's really beautifully disciplined, um, uh, and and 
and in in the in that discipline of watching other people's work and trying to put that across in another language that's a physical language i learned so much you know one of the my biggest i i constantly refer to it but one of the most important plays for me as an artist uh i interpreted the gili concert uh here uh, many years ago and actually tackling Gilles music Gilles singing to a deaf audience and trying to really work out how I can culturally appropriate it and then being sensitive to, to sensitive to the production and sensitive to the actors on stage and especially you know the guy at the end the big moment at the end um, that was an amazing challenge that has fed into my practice completely. Um, There's a question I was going to ask you, like the place of music in your work um, and especially working with deaf actors. Mm. Where do you begin with that? Because for um, an actor who has been deaf all her life, so mm-hmm. would not know uh, music by Nina Simone or Beethoven or, mm-hmm. you know, Geely. Where do you... Yeah, and, and all of these you? things I... Uh, refer to and use in the production we're making downstairs talk real fine just like a lady and so what I did uh, was first of all I literally made a translation of Mississippi Goddamn for them which is is where the title which is where talk real fine comes from uh, just like a lady and so I literally and oh my goodness Lisa their jaws dropped they couldn't believe that out in popular culture there was somebody who was speaking about oppression like that. And of course, when I made the translation, I approached it like I always would. I made culturally appropriate translations. They were literally ignited. Oh, my God. Is she they can identify that? Totally as identify as an oppressed minority, oppressed language minority, oppressed... Um, a cultural minority living under the thumb all their lives. They're just striving to say, you know what? We are intelligent, normal people who can hold down jobs. We just can't hear. There's a few steps you need to help us into that. They wouldn't even use the word help, my goodness. So constantly striving to bloom, to reach their potential, to to also tell hearing people that they have a beautiful language and they're okay being deaf. It's not something to be pitied. I remember your father, they don't miss Lawrence music. Coogan, they just don't know it. Yeah. Doing the exact same, yeah. those exact words uh, on the Abbey stage for the Noble Call yeah. for the Risen People. And you were um, the sign language interpreter that night. And mm-hmm. Then you interpreted for the hearing audience what your father was saying. Yeah. He was saying exactly that. Uh, the only thing we can't do is hear. Is hear, exactly. And you know, when I talked to Dad just before um, the Noble Call and... Uh, really describe myself and uh, Jimmy Fade, the director of um, uh, The Risen People. The Risen People. I'm going to see his name. (laughs) (laughs) Is uh, my husband and my dad's son-in-law. So we were chatting with dad at home over the kitchen table, you know, literally saying, look, the noble calls are like this and the play. Of course, dad hadn't seen the play and didn't have access to the play because I hadn't interpreted it yet. So once we 
talked through it, he was going, oh my, I know exactly, I'd love to do this. I so want to speak for the community. It's perfect that it's the night of the sign language interpreted performance. He talked about oppression. He talked about this march against oppression that just fizzled up from the community in the uh, early 70s. And he was one of the leaders of the march. Uh, Gorgeous, gorgeous, um, really important historical story. Um, from the community and you know those noble calls were so important and I'd even say um, the Abbey have been putting on sign language interpreted performances of each production since 2000 and with a language with ISL that still has no legal recognition here in the country this is an amazing support for the language that the National Theatre has done for the past 17 years. Really, really important. And I, I really do and fervently believe that the arts is the place where these things start to move and change and shift and blossom and grow and be accepted. Well, I'm always immensely proud on the nights that we have our sign language interpreted performance and that, you know, I'll be watching the audience, the hearing audience as well, mm. and they'll sit in and they may not have, you know, been to the theatre for a while or on that kind of particular night. And you can see them and then, you know, you stand up or Caroline or Ali or Vanessa will stand up mm. and do the fire announcement and then they kind of they twig as to what's happening and then usually I don't know either because you're in company at theatre you bring people along and you can see that recognition of yeah this is what we do like yeah, yeah we do that that yeah. as well and I'm so proud of that because yeah. it should be what we do especially yeah. as the National Theatre Absolutely no me too it's, it's so important and you know I've never heard uh, well, maybe because they don't <laughs> complain to me but I've never had a hearing person come up going oh no we arrived in the sign language interpreted performance evening in fact the opposite they always come and say that enriched their experience that I mirrored the actors uh, in such a way that it gave them some you know another a shadow or something like I mean I'll always approach a perform a, a production to see if I can fit in it somewhere you know I'll try and not just have the woman in black on the side of the stage where where appropriate and where possible. So, you know, if there's something like a chorus, then the sign language interpreter is a perfect chorus uh, member. Or if there's observer, you know, somebody who's really on the outside looking in, just watching and reporting, that's cla- you know, like Luna says, the dream. In terms of Katie Roach, um, mm. Teresa Devey, the writer, and Katie Roach, the character, they're both as interesting as each other in that Teresa yeah. Devey became deaf in her early 20s mm-hmm. and learned lip reading and at the theatre and then later wrote for radio and a medium which she at a time that she couldn't actually experience. Um, so we're all kind of revisiting, I suppose, <clears throat> Devey now. But would Teresa Devey have been known to the deaf community? Would they have embraced her back then? Would they have known her? Uh, no, well, uh, Leanne Quigley, who's the coordinator of the Dublin Theatre of the Deaf, would have given me the King of Spain's Daughter script about three years ago. And it's kind of bouncing on the video uh, video message, literally squealing up and down, going, oh my God, she's a deaf writer, she's a deaf artist. 
Um, so it was a kind of a discovery and it was around the Waking the Feminist. I interpreted the Waking the Feminist conference and the deaf community, deaf artists, deaf actors and performers were invited, you know, were invited and were involved in some of the things that, that was really wonderful. But I think that there had been a production of The King of Spain's Daughter in Oregon, if I'm correct, where it, the cast was doubled. So it was actors and no, excuse me. Yes, it was hearing actors and deaf actors. So there was a double of each character. And we call it shadow interpreting. Um, and so the play went on simultaneously in spoken English and in sign language. And I think that's how Leanne had come across it. And of course, the Mint Theatre in New York have been doing over a number of years have been doing a series of DV's work. And to be honest, I um, I think she gave me the script around 2014 or 2015. And I I kind of went, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a literary theatre maker. I didn't know where she, you know, we needed to iron out a lot of noodles in there. And Leanne uh, Quigley and the Dumb Theatre of the Deaf, they're so hungry and evangelical about speaking about their experience, speaking about the experience of deaf people and speaking about the experience of being sign language users in the world. They're literally burst, foaming at the mouth to speak about these things. So we kind of worked out, you know, that a lot of the themes, um, Devi's themes, which you can see in Katie Roach, um, and in The King of Spain's Daughter, the Annie character is very similar to Katie. Can you give us a little breakdown of of, uh, The King of Spain's Daughter? It's a similar story, very similar uh, to uh, Katie Roach, I feel. uh, No, absolutely. And, you know, as a maker myself, they're two years apart. You, you, You have a character, I would suggest, this is the way I'm reading it, and you throw different... Uh, circumstances at her and see where that how that character would react. So in the King of Spain's Daughter, there's the female character, young female, flighty, exuberant, dreamer. young girl, dreamer, is called Annie, and she's living with her father. At the opening, her father beats her just as the father in Katie Roach beats um, Katie. Um, and he gives her an ultimatum. There's a very sensible man, but he's the same age as her. There's a very sensible um, young man who she can marry or she has to go back to working on the factory across the river, across the, into the mainland. Uh, and the factory is soul destroying. It kills her, except she's not in love with this man at all. And she has uh, another young boy who she kisses. And in the script, she definitely kisses him. Who's, she's kissing on the edge of where her father and uh, Peter, Peter and Jimmy are working. And I don't think she's in love with the boyfriend guy either. But really interesting and what's really ignited our exploration of this text is there is a female character called Mrs. Marks. So maybe like the sister in Katie Roach, except that she is that double discrimination or women against women discrimination. So we were really looking at the context, the context of the writing of the Irish Constitution, which absolutely demoted women's roles um, and put us in the domestic sphere and clamp down on any kind of equality that 
that in the research that I've been doing is, uh, that proposes post-independence was there that women were very much involved in society and so the constitution was a clampdown and uh, and that it was clamped down with the acceptance of a lot of women. A lot of women didn't, you know, there wasn't a revolution. 50% of the population didn't get up in arms and say you can't uh, designate us to the domestic space to bring up children. Um, so we're really looking at that and we're looking at that kind of oppression from a set Mrs. Marks up as a kind of a deity or a devil and she flicks between both of them. It's un, un, unclear which she is. And then the Annies are living in the fabric of her skirt. I was going to ask you, so I suppose we're, we're getting into, I suppose, what audiences can expect from Talk mm. Refine, just like Lady in the Peacock as part of the Fringe Festival. So what I'm hearing is that it's going to be like a live installation, performance piece. Can you tell us a little bit about what audiences can expect from this production? Yeah. So I'm in the middle of making it, uh, which is always a terrifying t- a time to um, articulate something out of your head. You know what I mean? But it is, um, it's a, I hope, a beautifully balanced collaboration between my practice as a performance based visual artist and the Dumb Theatre of the Deaf's practice as theatre makers, um, albeit community theatre makers, uh, who want to speak in the professional sphere to the hearing world. They want to speak about their lives. Um, And so I've kind of taken us off the stage proper and I'm putting the visual arts on the stage. So there's a lot of filmic, beautiful, painterly, filmic um, content going on on the Peacock stage. And then all of the actions uh, um, happen in the auditorium. So in the auditorium, beside everyone sits down in their normal seats, but they will be in the middle of an installation. They have to sit inside Mrs. Mark's skirt. So Mrs. Mark's, la- the skirt becomes a landscape, it becomes mountain, it becomes, it speaks to the skin, it speaks to um, the mountains, the field that this, the King of Spain's daughter is set on. Um, so there, there's kind of rich uh, metaphors you can read into the installation. but uh, And then we have really appropriated the themes um, of the King of Spain's Daughter into the deaf situation. So speaking of being pigeonholed or categorised into doing one thing. So for Annie, she had to get married and that would stay in the domestic space even though it didn't she wasn't in love with any of the men to, uh, that had asked her I, I think she I think this dreamy quality of hers where she thinks she's the king of Spain's daughter or she dreams that the bride was had flaming red dress or the next time she speaks about it it's green dress or a blue dress and all these things is actually frisson of sexual desire I think it's all hit by sexual desire flavoured by sexual desire uh, and that's uh, something we were, we're knitting in to our production but it's more that kind of containment so for uh all of these women and, and my cast is fully women. It's, um, Mrs. Marks, I have multiple Mrs. Marks and multiple Annies, um, all deaf women. And they all were institutionalised. They're brought up in the institution of uh, the Deaf School for Girls. Um, 
And so there's lots of references to that kind of closed, tight uh, expectation of what you should do as a deaf girl, what you should be as a deaf girl. So and, and a lot of the emphasis was for them on being oral, learning how to speak and learning how to lip read, talk real fine, just like a lady. And so we're really going for that. Um, and Mrs. Marks is making them speak. And for a deaf person, I, I, I have to tell you, for all of these wom women, that was bordering on abusive. Bec it was, it's not a language that they can access because of their disability. Um, and the kind of training and brutality of the oral system, as they call it, was profoundly marked to each of these women's lives. Um, and they were just bursting to talk about it. So we've really tried to follow Devi's script with this line of exploration. Now, everything is in sign language, but I'm making this very beautiful soundscape with the sound designer and composer, Anya Faye. And my approach with my deaf actors, my deaf performers, is to translate it for them. I literally put the sound on my body and go, it's a bit like, it's a bit like this. So we're using Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Again, exploring, highlighting, honouring other deaf artists. So Beethoven, D.V., exactly the same situation. They're both deafened in their later years. All of my actors were uh, either born deaf or became deaf in very early childhood. And so are specifically sign language users. And D.V., we know, had some kind of home signs between herself and her sister, but it wasn't formal. And of course, Beethoven was in the hearing world, uh, in the sound world so much that... Um, I don't know, there's much research done as to how he um, chose to communicate, but... Um, how, do you, how do you convey then? How do you transpose Beethoven's music or convey that to... You, you, you mentioned it earlier, but because there's no... Because there's no lyrics like, say, the Nina Small mm -hmm. song with mm -hmm. this one, it is your interpretation of yeah. Beethoven's... It, it is very much an Amanda Coogan interpretation of Beethoven and you know I have certain mannerisms and stylisms that I have in my performances and they're absolutely there but I think what you know in 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 attacking the Beethoven seventh uh, as I did fourth movement just the last movement of it um, as I did I really want I mean I really wanted to convey to them the passion the extremes that Beethoven goes through, you know, there's the du, 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 and then there's the nice little beautiful, du, 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 you know, and all of these. So I wouldn't go and this is the violin and these are the trumpets or anything like that. I'm going with the emotion of the uh, piece. And of course, I did a lot of reading around it and whirling dervishes I went for and all this kind of petite loveliness. And there's a lot of hip wagging as well as the tone changes, not just arms and fingers. Um, you know, the guys went, oh, right. He's yeah, like that, feedback? is okay. it? Okay. You know, um, and I think once we get it, that these things are at, in some ways at, at some kind of distance when I do them in the rehearsal room or where they see it on a video. Um, but when they get into the space, because there's, it's a whole encompassing space, 
and I'm uh, the installation will be quite claustrophobic and the great sound system there. I think there will be some reverb where they'll actually feel it on the wooden floor. I have all the deaf on the flat of the wooden floor and the peacock as well. So they should be able to get some kind of buzz off that and that will give them a rhythm. But who cares? I mean, I'm really interested as I talk about translating music there and following music to the letter. I'm also really interested in the performances and I use use this strategy all the time in the work is that actually the sound element and the movement element don't have to be synced. They can actually be two. It can, you can double vision this and you can choose to flick between one and the other. You know, there's sometimes when they collide, but that is determinedly directed by me and they meet and then they fall off each other again. So, you know, and sometimes I need to beat that in when I'm speaking, uh, when I'm working with hearing performances, like stop listening to the music, stop following the music. Whereas with the gloriously with these um, deaf performers, I don't have to give that note at all. At all. It's no, it's obviously no coincidence that you have programmed uh, Talk Real Fine in the Peacock during ISL Awareness Week. And also yeah. during, uh, for that, for the debate in the Shannad for recognition as Irish language as a third indigenous language. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the importance of that? Yeah, well, I really wanted uh, Talk Real Fine, just like a lady, to speak to Katie Roach in, on the main stage. And uh, of course, I'd, I'd had a great relationship with Fringe and Chris Nelson in Fringe um, had worked, had commissioned the this collaboration three years ago. So I wanted to be in Fringe and I wanted to be ISL Awareness Week. So the, the only week that all of those collided happened to be the 19th to the 23rd of September and gloriously it all fell into place. But it wasn't an accident. The beautiful accident was that on our opening night, the final debate on the ISL bill goes through the House of the Senate. So as, uh, as I was saying, ISL is not legally recognised here in Ireland. It is in many other European countries and in America and in, uh, in the Western developed world and even in the underdeveloped, some countries in the underdeveloped, underdeveloped world as well. And more than, more, than, more than legal rights to access information in your preferred language, as we might think of the Irish Language Act that is being debated up the north at the moment or how we use our first language Irish here, it is much more fundamental for the deaf community. It is much more fundamentally this ISL bill will allow them to go to the doctors and understand what the doctor is saying. To go to the bank and negotiate a mortgage. To go to college and get uh, access to tutors and lectures and all of these everyday things that if because of your disability, because your lack of hearing, it makes a big barrier to access these things without sign language interpreters. So this bill is super, super important for this, just bridging those gaps that this community need bridging. And also as a kind of amazing recognition that they are here and they're members of Irish society and enriching members of Irish you know this gorgeous multiplicity of ways of being that this is a community that you couldn't kill by banning sign language in the 50s 
by not allowing deaf people to marry, by all of these kind of um, uh, eugenics ideas that they've had, they couldn't kill the community. It's still here. And in some ways, this bill will be a becoming for that. It'll radically shift deaf people's perception of themselves, but bringing some kind of national legal recognition of a, of a language that has refused to die because actually human beings need to communicate. They need to communicate and uh, for these people s trying to speak and trying to lip read just failed. And so they went back to a natural language that is completely accessible for them, which is Irish Sign Language. And it's unique. It's indigenous to Ireland. Britain has a different sign language. France has a different sign language. America has a different sign language. Because languages grow in the communities that use them. So this is a beautifully pure language. So any, you know, it's also linguistically gorgeous. It's delicious. Um, it's over the top, over dramatic, you know, reportage on the body. There's you, you have to be totally um, uh, unashamed of any, anybody looking at you or your body to speak in this language. It's 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 really enriches Irish society. I would, of course, uh, advocate that because it is my birth language, my first language. But uh, I don't think I'm speaking of the of the Richter scale there either though. Can I ask you about your background and being a CODA, a child of deaf mm -hmm. adults, um, and ISL being your first language, what was that like? Uh, I know you don't know any different, but what kind yeah. of household was it like? As I say, everyone's upbringing is their norm, but... Um, so in our house, the doorbells would flash. The lights would flash when the doorbell um, rang, which was always great fun for the Nick the Knackers on the road. Uh, and from myself and my sister and my brother's perspective, we were super loud, super roaring, screaming, very loud music. It was the loudest house on the street. As there was a beautiful documentary, radio documentary a couple of years ago called The Loudest House on the Street. And I'm not the only one. Every coda, you know, with two deaf parents who don't tell you to turn down your music, or turn off the television or, you know, stop shouting and don't slam doors. Well, slam doors was always a problem. There was a certain noise element, but if it made vibrations, we would kill each other. Me and my sister and my brother would go, don't slam the door. Then mum and dad will know we're fighting. I suppose the kind of funny thing is, and, and maybe it's particularly Irish, but a lot of codas my age have the same story. When we were born, I'm the first born. When we were born, there must have been some social worker who told them to buy a radio for us to stimulate just in case I would never learn how to speak. I mean, it's ridiculous. I live in a hearing world. I can hear. But anyway, that was the thinking back in the 70s. And so they bought one of those old radios with the knobs, you know, and we'd come down for breakfast and mum would turn it on every morning and she'd turn it on during tea time and it was out of tune. So it was just... You couldn't... I could barely hear Radio Ireland jingles and, you know, very authoritative voices in the background. But really, it was really um, out of tune. And I lived with it for years. And then it came to a certain stage. I think maybe I was nine or ten. Or I, I, I was just preteen. And my mother went back to work 
and a babysitter came in during the summer holidays and she just turned the dial and music. But that was a clean, clear, beautiful sound came out of this box at the end of the kitchen table. And it was like a revelation. And being the firstborn hearing child of a deaf couple, then mm. you probably have heard this from other coders that you would have, I suppose you would have been in a position of responsibility to bridge that bridge that gap, I suppose, mm-hmm. between the hearing world uh, and the deaf world, whether it's talking to insurance salesmen at mm-hmm. the door, the milkman. So uh, you grew up in an adult world very quickly. You know, it's there's pluses and minuses to it. I think that CODAs and I was the designated interpreter in the house as well, which is often goes to the firstborn girl. Firstborn like, girl, not yeah. even boy. Yeah, yeah, really? it's funny. Yeah, it's a bit of American research a couple of years ago about it. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I recognize myself there. So I would communicate between um, aunties, uncles, grannies, granddads, the news, who's died in Kilkenny. Um, or who's getting married, who's expecting a baby and all those things. Tell your dad such and such bought that field. And I'd happily say these things, but I wouldn't really understand what I was saying. On the other side of it, I would say I wouldn't be the artist I am today without that. And I think that children have chores, you know, and my chore was to just interpret, you know, to, to tell my mum what the milkman was saying or to tell my dad what my nana's the news from Kilkenny you know um, so I I think it was like doing the wash up I think it was like making your bed tidying your room I'm conscious of time now so I'll zip through this I always find it so funny when I just before you're doing a sign language interpretive performance I you know I, I offer you I suppose water and, and you just kind of laugh because knowing you as performance artists you are used to dura- uh, durational performances that last like 24 hours and mm-hmm. there's a test of endurance there but what I wanted to ask you was you know you've had years and years and years of this practice and mm. um, what do you learn from it or what have you learned the most from it from from doing that to your body out of your mind onto mm-hmm. your body but mm-hmm. what are you learning from mm. it what are you getting from it as well in my my practice as an artist I really need to do plus three hours performances so I like six five depends on the piece and I've done 24 hour performances and so there's a whole process of going beyond a determination so it's actually being very much in the moment you go into total flow deep concentration on this so I like my activities in my work to be super simple if it's walking up and down the stairs that's it I'm putting one foot in front of the other in a very particular way now or I am moving my hand to a place and then I want to bring it to B. And so I will be in the moment of that gesture completely. And uh, the strategy is looping and repetition. So there's something really rich about loop and repetition within these things. And so what happens is you become deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in concentration on that. And all the rubbish falls away. All that, oh, when I go home now, I must wash the kitchen floor kind of rubbish um, falls away. And you become, it's like a stone. It's like it drops under the water more and more and more and more. What does an audience do for that then? Though? How, so it helps me stay there. It gives me responsibility, I suppose, in some very personal way. I have said I will be here until seven o'clock. That's the fabric of my work. So I will be here until 
seven o'clock the next evening. Uh, but also that engagement, that kind of um, there's something very powerful about the eye gaze. So if I'm going, of course, in all of these performances, you go through crises. So you drop out of flow, you drop out of concentration, your body hurts, you feel like you can't go on. And one of my strategies to get over that is to look at the audience in the eye. And by the audience um, reciprocating that eye gaze, they feed me again. It's like they're going, yeah, go on, go on, keep going. Keep going, we're behind you. So it brings up all of that wonderful resilience, I suppose. And that's that's uh, has been said a lot about my work, that it's about the resilience of the human spirit, that she just keeps... It's a conceptual conceit that this woman has walked up down the stairs for 24 hours because nobody saw it. Now, people saw it dropped in and dropped out for the whole time, but nobody stayed there for the full 24 hours. It was only me. So I could have nipped off to my hotel room for a couple of hours at four o'clock in the morning. So who are you I doing didn't. it for? You're doing it for yourself to test your limits? No, no, it's a shared experience. It's absolutely a shared experience. It's not, um, uh, it's not for me. It's not for the audience. It's, um, I mean, the work is a form of conceptual art. You know, there is an idea and the idea is powerful, but it's embodied conceptual art so it's actually there there has to be a physical manifestation at hand I can't write a beautiful proposal saying a woman will wear nine coats and walk along the perimeter of the gallery I've written the script for it and the script for it is pretty much like that or women women will sit in a yellow dress and wash it for four hours I've written those scripts but it means nothing until it happens. And it's my commitment that if I say it's going to be four hours, it will be four hours, unless I need to be hospitalised. Like genuine, that's not exaggerating. I have fainted a couple of times. Um, but listen, I'm practising over 20 years. Fainted a couple of times, pretty good, you know. I was carried off by an audience member once. This is beautiful interventions like that. So it's a kind of an experiential commitment. Yeah, everyone wants, people are really, really engaged with the experiential and the embodied experiential, you know. So people come to see my work, they, they know because it's written down that I've been doing it for three hours or the invigilator might say she's in hour six now or uh, or whatever mediation that people uh, will will look for. They have to believe that. And sometimes your audience refuses to leave. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot. So I like to work in Tableau Vivant. So I like to I was going to cut. I was going to say cut out the theatrics of it. But here I am sitting in the Abbey, but it's not. It has the theatrics of its own, really. So I like the door of the gallery, whatever venue. I like. I really like working site specifically. I like that when you come in, the performance is already on, and that when you leave, the performance can can is continuing. When the door's shut, you go home. You can still imagine these women doing these activity because you haven't seen it collapse. You haven't seen the performed selves falling back down to every day. Um, and again, it's a conceptual conceit. 
but it means that it should ring and zing or have this shadow, like an imprint in your eye, in, in your retina. And often with a long durational performance, I need to be, as I say to my minders, or what we'd call stage managers here in the theatre, uh, they have to earth me afterwards because you might speak to me and I'm still not listening in that way. You know, you might say, Amanda, it's it's six o'clock or it's it's over. You'd need to actually touch me and earth me and then I'll come around as such or come back down to earth. But in that gorgeous, I'm zinging, you know, it's highly stimulating to go beyond boredom. That in that kind of John Cage way, what happens when you go beyond boredom is uh, is a kind of revelation. Last question, um, and this is to the woman who had a stamp issued after herself in, in 2013. Oh. Um, what, what does success mean to you? How do you, how do you measure success? What is that to you? I don't know. Isn't that so funny? That's such a juicy question. I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever, I've ever made something successful that I'm satisfied that's perfect. You know, I suppose success and perfection are two different things. Actually, for me, it's always about have I got rid of enough stuff to make it finished? Sometimes there'll still be too much going on. But, you know, uh, this is the great thing about performing myself. I just feck it out in the middle of the performance. Get, strip it immediately. And that's the great thing about being maker and uh, the conceptual artist and the maker. It goes on my body and I can make these really fast decisions, especially when you're that highly tuned to the place and the moment and being there. It's finished when I've chopped enough out of it. <laughs> we should go now to the Abbey stage and get ready for this signed performance. Thank you, Amanda Coogan. Mm-hmm. Thanks a million, Lisa Farrelly. <laughs>